is May 4th, 2020. Welcome to a special COVID-19 edition of Behind the Stethoscope. My name is Dr. Joelle Bradley. Today's podcast is a chance for our local physicians at, from the Royal Columbian, Eagle Ridge Hospital, and all the community doctors in between to connect. And today, because one of our guests is from Alberta, we are also going to be welcoming guests and listeners from Alberta, which is my home province. Before we start, let me ask in advance for forgiveness for any issues in sound quality today, as the three of us are recording remotely on an internet platform. So as we know, the COVID pandemic has been a harbinger of chaos and mortality, but it's also made people slow down and take stock of their lives and families. For some, the pandemic circumstances have brought us unexpected gifts and revealed our character strengths. On today's show, we bring to you a meeting of two physicians to discuss what it's like to be leaders in the time of COVID. And these two are not just any leaders. These two are essentially twins, twins seemingly lost at birth. The first twin is Dr. Gerald DeRosa, a longtime fixture and fearless leader as the head of medicine at the Royal Columbian Hospital in New Westminster. His long lost brother is Dr. John Bradley, a long-time head of medicine at the Grey Nuns Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta. Both of these men are nephrologists for the better part of two decades. Each of them is a father of four and takes their role of being a dependable chauffeur very seriously. Both are winners of multiple teaching awards. Each of them are easily distracted by the latest happenings in professional sports, and somehow they carve out time for scheduling basketball and hockey with their friends and colleagues. So Gerald, meet John. John, meet Gerald. Welcome to the show. And by the way, both of you are med school class grads of 1999. Thank you very much, Joel. And nice to meet you, Gerald. <laughs> nice to meet you, John. That's quite eerie. Um, I think the only difference is your sport is hockey, is my guess, and, and mine is basketball. Or Yeah, I epitomize everything they say about white guys playing basketball. So I, I <laughs> babble a bit in ice hockey. I'm not very good, but I quite enjoy it. That's excellent. Yeah, four kids. Though John, you don't have four girls, do you? Or uh, I'm blessed with two and two. How about yourself? Okay. Yeah. No, I, all four minor girls. So there's yeah, slight differences, but the rest is just grad year and everything. I it's hard to believe all that is. Uh, Joel kept on saying we should meet, and we're like the same. So uh, this this is eerie. Yes, it's uh, nice to meet a fellow nephrologist, though, as always. So. John, I, I kind of truncated your, your background because you are doing other things now in Alberta. What are you doing in terms of leadership these days in the time of COVID? Um, so I right now have, um, I guess, two roles. The first role is, for better or worse, for the last year and a half, I've been the president of the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta. Um, so obviously with COVID, we were having some challenges in terms of the regulation of uh, professionalism in Alberta. I'm also the section head for the Alberta Medical Association for the section of nephrology. And you may have heard there's a bit of acrimony right now between the government and physicians in Alberta. So between that and COVID, it's been a very stressful time for many physicians, uh, myself included. So those are sort of the two roles right now that are taking up most of my time and effort. I'm going to ask you guys, as COVID was heading to Canada if you can think back to February and March 2020, what were you foreseeing was going to be your role and responsibility as this was coming towards us? Maybe, Gerald, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think that um, I don't think I actually had an appreciation for 
how much preparation was going to be required, especially in early February, I kind of was a bit naive and a bit hopeful that this was something happening across the world. And it wasn't necessarily going to uh, come over here in uh, any dramatic way, shape or form. And I think that it really started to become more, I would say hit closer to home when we started to see all these cases in Seattle. That's when I got the sense, even in the med as a medical community, we started to pay attention a little more and uh, start to get worried that if it could come all the way to Seattle, then of course it could come to our hometown, which it eventually did. But we had a bit of lead time, which I think helped in many ways. So I would echo very much what Gerald said. You know, I can think back into meetings I was in in February. And like he said, you almost as halfway around the world. I mean, it's really nothing big here. And then I think it was, I want to say the 9th or 16th of March, they shut down schools in Alberta. And that's suddenly when it becomes real, when we hadn't had the surge yet in any of the hospitals. But soon when you have four lovely children running around at home with my wife trying to homeschool, that's when it really hit home that this is going to be different. And it's going to be much more severe than I think any of us had anticipated initially. The hard part with any of these things is to invest a huge amount of time when there's no instance of cases, right? Because then you're looking at everyone meeting and trying to get supplies and then really to quantify how to deal with something that's purely theoretical becomes quite challenging. And so I think that I even found the first few weeks of planning kind of around that mid-March period is as almost a bit overwhelming because we didn't even know what we were dealing with and we didn't know how hard we were going to get hit. And so trying to conjecture about things like supplies and managing patients when you don't even have a patient in your hospital um, becomes, you know, really challenging to get some sort of concrete plan, I would say. Um, and I didn't have to do nearly as much as John if he was the head of the, you know, the college and stuff. I was just thinking about how we're going to deal with it at a local hospital level. Yeah, it's, um, it's almost surreal. I mean, I don't think any of us, you know, unless you were, I guess, in Toronto during SARS, you know, I've never had any instance before where we've had practices shut down or severely curtailed. Um, you know, we've seen a rise, obviously, in the use of virtual medicine, at least in Alberta. We've had very little of it before. And as you say, you're trying to plan for things. You have no idea how bad it's going to be. I, I think there was, for a lot of us, I think it was still, all, you know, this is in China, it was in Asia. Well, things will be different here. Um, and it happened suddenly and very quickly. And, you know, to echo your point, it is really, it's an abstract exercise. You're trying to deal with something and plan when you have no idea what's coming or when it's coming. And it's, it was, was and continues to be quite a challenge, I think. So I was chatting with some colleagues at work. So I'm a hospitalist at Royal Columbian and I, I work with Gerald and he's in the Department of Medicine. And what people told me is that they so appreciated about Gerald is that he took this really seriously, really early. And what seemed we were just lagging to take action, Gerald was always like three steps ahead of the game. He was planning for, you know, phase one, two, three, four, and five of the pandemic. And he was so available to uh, meet with other departments and has just been really, really incredible in terms of being available, organized, and probably like our main strategic person. Yeah, I think the irony is that um, I actually had spring break plans and I don't know what uh, I don't know when Alberta spring break was but our spring break was kind of mid-March and I was still naively holding out hope that I was going to be able to take my kids to Disneyland actually 
And so I think I hadn't given up on that concept. And then they, they shut down Disneyland two days before we were supposed to fly out, um, which ended up being a good thing because we probably would have flown there and then they would have shut Disneyland on us. And then we would have to fly back in like four days. But I think like until that actually happened, I was still kind of floating along. Once that happened, it was kind of a, a switch turned in my brain that I said, okay, this is actually serious. You know, they are now stopping people from leaving the country. They're shutting down the borders. It's happening across the border. And I think once that happened, I kind of went full in on the planning. And uh, I have to say, you know, like John has said, I've, I've never dealt with anything like this in 15 years. And I've had a variety of leadership roles but even when I've talked to people who've been in practice for 40 years, they tell me like they've never dealt with anything like this. And so I think that's what made it very challenging is we didn't, and even some people were kind of in Toronto during the time of SARS, but they said it, it wasn't necessarily like this. And uh, I can tell you that in terms of just the amount of meetings, it was almost overwhelming in the beginning. I would get up at seven o'clock in the morning, we'd have town halls, and then I you, according to my wife, like I was in my home office here till about 11, 12 at night, um, trying to synthesize information, you know, talk to different groups, uh, calm people down, you know, plan for the next day. And uh, I'm sure John has the same feeling that the information was almost changing so quickly that you'd try and come up with a plan. And then the next day they'd say, oh, no, something else different now. And, and then you'd, you'd have to change like everything you did the day before. And so I found the first kind of two weeks really just all, all consuming. So I have to say, I, um, uh, I, I use this in, with all sincerity. I'm very fortunate. I no longer have an operationals role, like the operations role that you would have. The head of our department, he, he, the same thing. I mean, he's, he, I speak to him and he's in meetings all day. And like you say, there'll be a recommendation today and in three days it's changed. And, you know, I, I would hope everyone's very um, cognizant of the fact that he's not the one changing it. We get more information, more knowledge, more experience, but that's all he does, I think, is meetings. And then he tries to keep us abreast. Um, you have, you know, physicians, I think, by their nature are very independent-minded, and it's hard for some to, I think, sort of wrap their heads around. Some say we should be taking this more serious. Others say that, you know, perhaps we've, it's a bit overblown at the moment. So, yeah, that's... Uh, when I, when I hear those stories, I, I'm actually quite pleased that I don't do operations like I used to. So that has saved me a bit. John, one of the things I was wondering about, you wear a couple hats here, the president of the College of Physicians, and their mandate is to protect the public. And then you sit on the Alberta Medical Association. So that's the equivalent of the doctors of BC. And there you're to advocate for physicians. And I wonder and worry that um, in the past couple months, like, the Alberta physician contract got ripped up and dishonored and physicians were so mad. We're like physicians trying to take job action. And how did you manage to those two hats, like being protecting the public and then advocating for your colleagues? So I don't know what you and Gerald's experience has been, but when you wear more than one hat, it becomes very tricky at times. I would say the, I mean this in a, I'm not sure if it's coming across right, as you go higher up in the leadership uh, spectrum, you know, the advantage to that is you actually have more influence and you get more involved with, I think, influencing healthcare policy at a higher level. The downside to it, though, is you do have to start watching your mouth. And as someone who used to, I mean, I love writing letters to the editor. I would fire off letters to department heads. You know, I, I really like that sort of the grassroots 
um, sort of participation that you see a lot in social media, which has really expanded since you know you and I would have graduated. But it's you got to remember what you're speaking for, and you have to really watch your language in terms of what I might think individually sometimes isn't conducive to what's best for the organization, either one that I'm speaking on behalf. So it's a bit of a challenge and it's um, it's been a steep learning curve, especially in these last couple of months with all that's going on, trying to remember which hat I'm wearing and hopefully uh, representing the organizations appropriately. And speaking of that kind of thing, you do have to be very careful on what you say and, and what hat you're wearing. And I was just re-reading the letter that Gerald wrote back on March 20th. It was this very important letter, like things were coming to a head and Gerald spoke on behalf of all of us, but it was his name at the bottom of a letter with a Fraser Health logo up top, which I don't think he was authorized to use. And he he made um, calls to action to the BC government to make very unpopular changes like right now. And we're so appreciative that he did that. But um, Gerald, did you get any fallout from that? Uh, Yeah, a little bit. Um, So just to clarify, to a certain degree, when we were having these town halls, you know, I was there was a lot of tension in our department and there was a lot of stress. And I think that one of the things that we were seeing, which I think other places in the country were seeing, um, cause I know the premier of Nova Scotia said the same thing is that, you know, we were going to work, we were preparing, we were going to see COVID patients and be on the front line. And then people would be on their way home or have their weekend off and be trying to socially distance and they would be seeing these people on the beach, right? Like I, I think the big thing was that one weekend, people, it was a sunny weekend and there were just, the beaches were packed, the playgrounds were packed, everyone was playing sports. And um, I think it, it created a lot of frustration in my department. So because of that, you know, my department felt that we had to speak out. And so the letter's not only my letter. We kind of put it together as a departmental venture. But the question was, how how were you going to have it have some sort of teeth? And uh, so the question was, you know, we didn't, fe- we felt it was necessary to get put through really quickly. In an ideal world, you would get 60 signatures and everyone would sign it. And we'd say on the behalf of the department, but to be expeditious and to try and, you know, get our message across, I, I ended up signing it as the head of the department and understandably uh, I think you know like John said when you have an administrative role of some sort you have to think about that role and uh, contextualize your statements at times luckily I'm not that high in the food chain but you know Joel you're right I think that um, because I represented myself as the head of medicine at a hospital and there was a Fraser Health logo I think Fraser Health was a little bit concerned initially that I was trying to portray myself as speaking on behalf of the health authority, which I clarified with whoever contacted me, which a lot of news agencies contacted me afterwards, um, that I was speaking on behalf of the department and not necessarily as a spokesperson for Fraser Health. I think some other people higher up were a bit you know, concern that someone would speak up, you know, quote unquote, out of turn. That being said, I think our department just felt that frontline workers needed to have a say. And uh, I can tell you the amount of uh, positive reception I got from, you know, physicians, nurses, and even patients, actually, you know, I'm running a virtual office, and a bunch of my patients, you know, they tell me I, you know, I saw you on TV, or I saw your letter. And they said, you know, thank you very much. And they said, you know, seeing your own doctor or someone you trust 
you know, coming forward with these concerns, you know, gave them, you know, made them think about it more, made them tell other people to pay attention more. So I think sometimes uh, when you think something is right, you know, I, you kind of just go ahead and do it and you kind of accept the consequences later. I, I was glad to see that, you know, other groups came forward after we came forward. And I was also glad to see that, you know, the doctors of BC president a few days later came forward and encouraged physicians to actually, you know, contact their patients um, about social distancing and engage with the media to kind of put forward the message of social distancing. So at the end of the day, I think it was okay. But the first few days were quite stressful, both from talking to different people at different administrative levels, but also it caused a lot of a media, I get the media were quite hungry for stories. And so I ended up getting a lot of attention and I wasn't really used to dealing with the media. So I don't know if John has to do that a lot, but I've, I've not had to engage with the media that often. And so it, you know, when John says things are a learning curve, that was definitely a huge learning curve for me. So I also, I, I loathe and fear dealing with the media. It's definitely not my forte. You know, it's interesting though, and I think this is something I've appreciated sort of the, the more I get into my career. I think anytime a physician speaks up on what they think honestly is best for patients and not necessarily what's best for them, certainly not necessarily what's economically beneficial to them, but they always bring it back, what's best for the health of my patients and the population I serve. I think no matter what consequences you face, that's when your, your colleagues and some of the organizations that are physician-led need to step up and really support us. A couple of years ago, we had in Alberta, we went through, I think it was actually a provincial inquiry about physician intimidation. And the reality is I think things are better, but it's still there. You still wonder when I speak up, you know, am I going to be asked to resign from the hospital? I have a mortgage to pay. I have kids to feed. And I, I think as long as you always concentrate on when you do speak out on what's best for my patients, what's best for the population that I serve, I, I think you should have support of the other physicians. And I think as a unified group, the more we support each other, the more our voice carries for things like this. So, you know, that type of story for me, when I hear that when I saw some of our physicians do similar things, I thought is fantastic. That's, you know, really what the essence to me of professionalism is. And I would hope that you didn't actually face any negative repercussions other than just fear. Yeah, the, um, no, it wasn't too bad. Just, uh, just a few phone calls. And, um, but, you know, you know, I think John's statement, I, I just want to reiterate that because, you know, there's always so many stakeholders when you're involved in administrative decisions. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, one of my, kind of words to live by is to bring it back to the patient. And I agree that if you argue on what's best for your patient, it is very hard for people to, at the end of the day, to, to poke holes in that argument, right? Because that's what we're here to do. And, you know, that's where I always try and pull people back to uh, when, you know, there's a lot of conflicting opinions is what is the best for the patient. And, you know, when, when I came forward and our group, um, we did debate it because there are consequences like Joel, you pointed out, right? Like I, I knew that it, encouraging, you know, enforcement of these, these social distancing measures might cause some small businesses to have to temporarily shut down or change their practice. You know, it will impact people. People will be a bit more socially isolated. Uh, I talked to my wife, who's usually my moral compass to say, you know, you know, what are the, is this the right thing to do? And, uh, and ultimately, when we talked about it, we said, you know, if people listen, then it will save lives. And that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to save lives. So and, you know, at the end of the day, if we do this properly, um, I always felt that fundamentally, the time period that 
your area would have to be under isolation and the, uh, the negative impacts would be shortened and you might actually be able to get back on track sooner. And so, you know, we decided to come forward with this and I said, sure, whatever happens, happens. Fundamentally, I guess the major consequence is that I could have gotten removed as the head of the department. I don't think I could have gotten fired as a nephrologist or anything because I, you know, I, it has nothing to do with my practice as a nephrologist. And um, one of the other things that I, I firmly believe when I take on these jobs is that as a leader, you know, my role is to gather consensus, um, but it's also to speak, you know, do what I believe in, right? And if I ever feel like I couldn't kind of fulfill those obligations to myself, like my moral and ethical beliefs, then I, to be honest, I don't really want to do the job. So, you know, if I spoke out and people were really upset with me and said, you know, you're no longer the head of medicine, well, I probably would get, you know, hours of my life back <laughs> and um, <laughs> it'd be a heck of a lot st less stressful because I just go back to patient care, which is, you know, I really enjoy looking after patients. So, you know, I never have a problem with speaking my mind. I think people know that about me. Um, and I hope they respect that. Sometimes I have a difference of opinion, but you know, uh, if I have difference of opinion, I, I say it, I'm, I'm willing to listen to other schools of thought, but uh, I worry when people take on roles, if they worry about the consequences of, of doing what they believe in. Um, because if you worry too much about the consequences, um, then you aren't governed by your inner moral compass. Gerald, I was so appreciative in that letter. The other unpopular thing in there for the public to be reading is that we're advocating no visitors to hospital. And, and I remember in the week prior, I had a patient in hospital and the spouse kept coming in and the spouse had the sniffles and the cough. And I said, you cannot be here with these symptoms. And first of all, the, the spouse was at risk of getting ill should this person catch COVID and her spouse in hospital is also at risk. And I had no control to keep this person out of hospital. And I am so appreciative that you put forth that very unpopular um, request and statement and I wonder if it has an influence on the trajectory that BC had compared to the trajectory we could have had so thank you oh you're yeah you're welcome I mean that was actually born out of the frustration of the nursing staff and the um, and the ward teams is that they were seeing you know we were all kind of going through proper PPE teaching and uh, you know making sure we don't end off properly and it's a very complex process right and uh, I think the concerns from the wards were that, um, you know, these families were coming in and four at a time and they were putting on PPE, but they weren't trained how to do it. And the risk of them kind of spreading it, if someone had COVID to the, you know, the rest of the hospital staff on the ward was quite significant. So, you know, it, it, it was also once again, a hard one because, you know, patients healing um, and having their loved ones available is part of that process. Um, but you know, in terms of something like this that we've never dealt with before and it's unprecedented, I think we felt that that, that measure, though initially seemed quite drastic, um, was important. And so, you know, now, of course, there's always exceptions, right? But we wanted it to be generally the rule um, that we wouldn't have visitors and the exception would be for compassionate purposes and things like that, which is kind of the current standard right now in, in, the, uh, in the province. So... I'm wondering with either of you, like you both come across so calm and cool and collected all the time. That's the face that you show. Were there any breakdowns or where you, you did lose your cool in the last month or two that you'd share with us? I think um, 
I think this is generally the rule. Most times when you're in sort of a leadership position, I always like to have things written out because you can get your emotion out of it. So you can yell and swear and grit your teeth behind the scenes. But, you know, I always find, I always like to write. If I have a statement or anything, I always like to put it in writing and send it versus um, in terms of approaching it just verbally um, for that very reason. When you're tired, you're stressed, you're likely to say something that either you didn't mean to, or you forget to say what you wanted to. So, yeah, I, I think, I don't know. I, I don't know how you could work with the stress of everything that's going on and not have at least one or two moments where you maybe aren't your, well, not that I'm ever really calm, but you're not as, you don't put out that your typical mannerisms, the way you try and deal with patients. I, I, I think most people have had their moments where they've blown up every now and then. And that's, I think that's just life. And John, I want to thank you for what you put in your college letters. I was, I was reading your, you know, letters to your people um, over the past couple weeks and the one that you were getting your colleagues prepared for COVID I think three or four times in one letter you said and I'm scared and I'm fearful for my family and I'm worried and I'm scared every day and it was really amazing for you to not pretend to be something you aren't you set a good example yeah just um and I, I would assume things are different or this are the same in BC but you can let me know if they're not you know there's this unexpected the abyss of what we're heading into. And one thing I think that was very uniform when I spoke to my colleagues, the same feelings I had, no one really thinks about so much yourself. You know, you're, we, as you mentioned, as Gerald mentioned, we don and doff all the protective equipment. We um, do our best to uh, protect ourselves, but we signed up for this. So we've had other infectious issues before TB. So we are used to sort of dealing with this. What I've really feared is my family. So you know, what would the guilt be if you were to come home and I had COVID and I gave it to one of my kids and if they got sick, even if just if I got uh, exposed and I had to go live in the basement for two weeks, I mean, you know, you'd be so close to your family, but you're so far from them. The guilt of having my wife being the full-time single parent for two weeks while I'm stuck in the basement. I mean, this is sort of what I, and I still dwell on. This is what sort of I'm most afraid of. And I just heard enough physicians of my own colleagues say the same thing that I just want to put it out there that this is probably normal what most of us are thinking and it's okay to think like that and we should support each other because ultimately we are a profession and we are, you know, we do as best as sort of the one who's struggling the most amongst us. So that was my thought behind it. And I got some, for the most part, some favorable responses to it. Yeah. So, you know, Joel, I think that um, one major principle of leadership is to share your thoughts and your feelings and you know as much as you can show that you're one of the group and that you have the same concerns or same fears same uh wishes as as everyone else i think it it is a very powerful thing you know i run the clinical teaching unit at royal columbian as you know so we had to decide what to do with residents and, uh, and we pulled the residents back to the front line, uh, sometimes from their clinical electives and things like that. It was a big decision. And I wrote them a letter and uh, because I think some of them were very frustrated and they were very sad, right? I mean, it was affecting their lives in potentially a fairly negative way. And I remember in my letter, I said to them, you know, I'm sad too. You know, we've all, we're all losing something. Right. And I, I just kind of told them about how, you know, we had plans for spring break. It's my daughter's in grade 12. She's graduating. We had this big trip planned. We have this big trip in the summer and, you know, we had our grad banquet and those things have all presumably been canceled. And, you know, I knew other people who had canceled their postponed their weddings. And I said, you know, it's okay to uh, be sad about these things. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to go through some level of grief. And I said, you know, I went through all those things and then I made peace with it. And then I forged on ahead and I said, 
you know, that's what we all need to do is kind of um, identify what sacrifices we're making, you know, go through the grieving process for things that we've lost and then move on ahead and do what we were trained to do. You know, I, I, I think I got some texts from the residents saying, you know, thanks for sharing that. You know, it's nice to know that other people are feeling the same way, but you know, it, it also kind of inspired people, you know, the latter part was more inspirational. Like this is what we trained to do. We're here to save lives. You know, let's rally together fight all this together and then when things settle down then we'll help you get back your programs help you match and all those sort of things that you know we're usually focused on more than this one of the things i think though that that shows is this is a great opportunity i think for all physicians to model to our learners and also model to the other allied health professionals that we work with you know that's exactly that i think the type of attitude that we should all take and that's i think something that residents look up to if, you know, that's, it's great when you share personal stories like that, that everybody is sacrificing. But when they see the head of CTU doing it, I think it does sort of raise the bar that this is what's expected of me. This is what we're trained to do. Let's just go ahead and do it. And I think that's sort of cohesiveness is what, that's, I think, one of the attractive things about being part of medicine is that you're not alone. And it's great when you see your preceptors behave like that. And that's something that, you know, I'm really cognizant of and trying to, with our department share, is that every day you're on the ward, how you act, how you, which PPE protocol you follow. And ours are probably different, my understanding, than BC's. But people look up to you. If you walk in, you know, to the, the ward with an N95 mask by a hazard suit, I guarantee you the nurses are going to say, oh my God, what do they know that I don't? So the modeling, I think, is really crucial. And that's something, you know, they're going to, residents will get experience in terms of looking after patients, but it's, hopefully it's these type of lessons that are really going to help them and sort of shape them into the future. And I actually do believe that. I'm not just trying to be inspiring. I actually do believe that's the case. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Joel, you asked about us being afraid sometimes and stuff. And, you know, like John, like it's only human to be afraid. And I certainly was afraid in the beginning without understanding COVID. You know, you're listening to these stories in Italy saying young people in their 20s are getting COVID, you know, and developing cardiomyopathy and dying, right? And so uh, before we actually had our experience, you know, I think we all fundamentally felt who knows how serious this could be. And um, I think like, like John, I wasn't that worried about myself, but I, I too was very much worried about my family. And I think in our department, that was probably the pervasive theme is, you know, what do we do to protect our families? But, you know, as a leader, you have to go there and you have to kind of, you know, show some level of strength, right? Like if I start panicking and I'm like running around, you know, freaking out, like that's not going to do anyone uh, any service, right? So I think that, you know, some of the calmness is trained because you learn as a leader that you have to project some sense of calmness. It's kind of like when you teach students and residents, right? You have to project some level of confidence for them so that when they come to you, you say, okay, yeah, let's do that, right? I think the patient's safe. Let's just keep going with your plan, right? And it's similar as a leader of a, of a group of people. You have to say, okay, this is the best. This is what the recommendations are. They seem reasonable to me, so that's what I'm going to do. And uh, I actually had that exact same scenario that John's mentioning is, I, you know, we bought a lot of equipment to plan ahead. So I have this like Darth Vader looking mask and it's quite intimidating. It looks like a shock trooper. Um, Gerald, is it more intimidating than the purple scrubs? Oh, the purple scrubs are just for style, you know? <laughs> Gerald has signature likes the, purple scrubs. Oh. Everyone likes the purple scrubs. But, um, well, for a while, to, to be fair, we didn't know that we were going to get scrubs supplied. So I went and got my own. And, you know, uh, I love the Lakers. So 
uh, I decided to get purple scrubs. <laughs> um, so, but, um, you know, I had this kind of very intimidating mask and I was going into the hemo unit uh, to do rounds for the week. And I actually did make a conscious decision not to wear that mask. And I said, you know, if I wear that in there, it's exactly as John said, they're going to go, why is Dr. DeRosa wearing this thing that we don't have, right? And we've got these safety goggles and these, uh, you know, surgical masks. And why is he wearing this contraption here? So, you know, I, I went to the unit and I wore the exact same thing that the nurses are wearing. And we had a little powwow session with the, our clinical nurse educator and I attended it. And, uh, you know, they had lots of questions about airborne droplet. There was a lot of confusion. When do you wear the N95s? And they said, you know, we've been told, you know, that N90, everyone should be wearing N95s. As people in my department said, too, you know, they read some articles about spread and New England Journal articles and all this sort of stuff. I'm like, guys, like, you know, they're reading random kind of tidbits of information. And so I simply said to the nurses, look, I'm, I'm walking through the unit with the exact same thing you're walking through. Okay. So, you know, we're all in this together. I believe that the recommendations are reasonable. That's why I'm wearing it. And I think that uh, that was important for the nurses to hear, right? That, 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 um, that we're doing the same thing. And similarly, when CQ came up for people to sign up, um, I made sure that I did one of the first weeks on service. It's kind of like when I do July 1st every year, because <laughs> that's when the new residents come. And so it's kind of, you know, it's my rule is to always do the, the beginning of the year when the new residents and new students come. Uh, just so I'm part of the part of the team, because that's kind of the usually what people say is one of the most challenging times, um, though I actually enjoy it quite a bit because all the residents are really, they're very nervous, but they're also very kind of enthusiastic and just kind of energetic about things. So um, it's my favorite time to actually do CTU, but um, you got to put your money where your mouth is. I don't know if people in the audience have figured this out yet, but uh, John and I are brother and sister, and we actually have had some very fearful moments. I think if this is true for you too, John, is that, you know, our parents, we talk to them probably, it's terrible, maybe every four weeks. And since COVID, they've been requesting a phone call once a week. So we're like up 400%. Is that for, right for you, John? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. It's really good in terms of bringing mom and I closer together. So that's good. But that being said, um, John and I come from a medical family and, um, this business about leading by example and you put your patients first and like our, our dad has always been just the most classic physician where his patients have always come first and before everything. And, and for John and I, uh, we are watching my dad, who's, who's still an excellent physician, but he's still going into the hospital and we have to sit and worry about him catching COVID, but hopefully not now. I think we're, we're getting past things. How old is he, Joel? Well, he's like 74, 75. Like in 2006, he was the Alberta Family Physician of the Year. Like he is a clinician who's got the diagnosis 70% by the time he's finished the history and then does the physical exam and he's 95% he's got the diagnosis. He's just, he's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, he's a very good role model for the two of us, for sure. Very old fashioned though, like patients first above all else. And this is the time, so. Yes. So it is one thing to be, the best clinician you can be and you guys have stepped into leadership and kept going and going and going with it and there's got to be some kind of opportunity cost with being a leader and I'm wondering why you guys keep at it. Yeah so there's quite a significant opportunity cost I would say. It's especially challenging when you're trying to maintain your practice and also take on leadership roles and so 
you know, I actually still have a hundred percent nephrology practice. And so do the kind of head of medicine and CQ director stuff as an add on. And I think that with that, of course, there is extra hours in the day. And uh, certainly my family often has to be accepting of that. And they are very supportive and they are very accepting. But, you know, I don't know how life is with John, but like as the department head and the CQ director and stuff, I like my phone is never off. So, you know, there's there's often an issue or something that comes up that they need to talk to me about. And I'm a very involved person. Now, that being said, you know, I think you you also have to look at the other aspect of things and say, well, why would someone do it? There's many different reasons. Certainly in my case, it's not for procedure or anything like that. You know, one thing is I, I tend to kind of not like it when things aren't going smoothly and it kind of bothers me. And that kind of dates back to even when I was a resident. And uh, one of the reasons I applied for chief resident in my program and when I did my interviews, I said, well, you know, every program has things that could go better. And, you know, my fundamental thought process, if you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. So one thing that annoys me is there are some people that just love to complain. And when you ask them to try and come up with a solution or put some time into it, they sometimes don't. Right. And and then I'm kind of like, well, if you're not willing to put in the time and fix the problem, then anyone can just complain about things. So for me, part of it is that I just, you know, I don't think I could keep quiet anyways. <laughs> That's what people would say about me. Like I, I like to kind of, when there's a problem that's out there, I'd like to try and solve it. I like to try and help. And so in those scenarios, you end up kind of gravitating towards leadership roles to a certain degree because, you know, you just keep on talking. And so, you know, people then start to put you in charge of things and then, you know, it just kind of goes and goes. But, you know, I would say the Department of Medicine, you know, each of these things has been extremely gratifying. I think that clinical medicine, eventually, after you've done it for 10 to 15 years, some aspects of it do become fairly repetitive, I would say. And so the question that, you know, I always tell people is to think about what you can do in your career or your life. It might not be work-related. It could be non-work-related to kind of supplement the career aspects of things. And for me, it it does happen to be work-related. Running the CTU has been just a wonderful experience. Um, I get to interact with residents. You know, it's really enhanced our hospital and uh, a lot of the residents that we train, they come back and work at Royal Columbia, and they become colleagues of mine. And it I think that's just like you have an inside scoop, and you see the shining stars, and you carve a spot for them, and it's waiting for them if they're the right person for the team. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, and 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 the same thing as the department head. You know, I think that there are a lot of headaches. You know, no one likes to discipline people. Uh, no one likes to deal with patient complaints and investigate charts and all that sort of stuff. Um, But it needs to be done. But I think, you know, as the department head, I get to have a role in shaping the direction of the department. I get to have some level of say into who we hire, ensure that the people that we hire have similar kind of goals and ideals, and they fit with our community. And, uh, you know, I think in, in having that ability to influence that, it has made our department, you know, strong, really collegial. And, you know, that makes the environment that I work in a lot nicer to work in. So, you know, someone has to put in the time to do that. So I've always felt that the benefits outweigh the kind of downsides of it, but there is a cost. There's always a cost. Um, and a lot of that is time more than anything else. 
So, you know, essentially when you talk about cost and it is your family, it's the one that suffers. And I mean, if you look around, that's probably the number one reason why there's not as many women proportionally in leadership roles as men. Um, I'm not sure Gerald, his life circumstance, um, you know, I have a wife, my wife looks after my four children. And I mean, I couldn't do all these things if I didn't have her taking on that role. For me, getting into leadership was really, again, sort of about mentoring. We, I work at a relatively small community hospital, which I think disproportionately is very politically active. We've have um, colleagues of mine have been high up in the Alberta Medical Association, upwards of the president. We have people who've been president of national societies of whatever specialty they're in. And it's one of those things, you just start working there and it, you, you don't even realize it, but everybody seems to do something involved in some sort of leadership and it sort of just drags you up with them. And like Gerald said, I couldn't agree more. It's the people who complain and refuse to do anything to try and come up with a solution. They just, they drive you crazy. I think if you're going to complain, if you want to advocate for change, you got to be prepared to step up and try and, and try and help with that. And there, there is a sacrifice, but I also agree, it really makes things more interesting. I always joke, but it's, you are truly using the other side of your brain uh, that we don't necessarily get to use, or we don't use as often when we do straight clinical medicine. And, you know, someone once told me, and I think I, I absolutely agree with this, the best leaders are those who do it, and they don't really do it because they want to pad their CV. It's, they just do it because they feel it's their duty to step up and try and make a difference. And, you know, when you see... When you think back to everyone that you've ever worked under or the leaders who you've looked up to, I think one of the common characteristics that I've always seen is they just do it for the right reason. They're not, they're not arrogant about their positions. They're very humble. They want to just make a difference, want to make things better for their patients, make be things better for their colleagues. And I don't know, when you see that, you can't help but think, well, that's sort of, I guess, what my job is to try and do. And then hopefully try and mentor those behind me to kind of come up and take over for me one day and do a much better job than what we've been able to do. Oh, no, I was going to say, interestingly, yeah, most of the jobs I've taken on, I've kind of been voluntold into them. So um, like the C2 director, Ken Atkinson, was the head of medicine at the time, and they were looking for a third CTU. And um, Ken, it was actually Ken's vision that it would be great for us to bring a CTU to Royal Columbian Hospital. And uh, because I had ties as chief resident, and he knew that I was kind of volunteered to take it on, though I'm really happy that I did so. And similarly, when Ken stepped down as head of medicine, now almost 10 years ago, at that time, I was still relatively early in the career. I didn't really necessarily feel like it was something that I would necessarily take on at that time. But our department was kind of bimodal in terms of we had a, two different age distributions. And I think a lot of the senior members didn't want to take on a job like that at, at that point in their career. And so it was kind of left vacant for a little while. And then, you know, like John said, someone has to do it. And uh, so I stepped forward to do it. But the last thing I would echo is the same thing. Like, yeah, my wife is a speech language pathologist, but she's kind of put her career on the back, you know, back burner to help look after our children. You know, I, I, I would not be able to do half of what I'm able to do without her assistance. You know, with that many kids, it's an endless coordination of things. Now, that being said, I try not to impact my family as much as possible. And so what that means is you have to be, and this is what I tell people who are thinking about a career in administration, stuff like that. You just have to determine what your bandwidth is. Uh, some people operate at a kind of with a high motor and have a certain amount of bandwidth and, um, and they're able to kind of multitask and like coordinate things a lot. So I end up trying to coordinate a lot of things, you know, I, I still, end up coaching my daughter's grade nine basketball team 
for the basketball season, it just requires a lot of driving. And then a lot of the tasks are done, you know, you get the kids to bed at nine, 10 o'clock, and then I'm on the computer from 10 to 1230. So, you know, sometimes it just depends on the person, right? Like I, I'm fortunate right now, I don't seem like I need as much sleep as some people, but uh, it does sometimes, you know, then you get tired and then you get frustrated. And so you have to focus, you know, one of the biggest things I've learned during this COVID is, is you have to pace yourself. And I wasn't a huge wellness guy, you know, up until the past few years. And then Joel, you know, you, me, Samir and Ben have been working on this wellness podcast. I've really been delving into it, into a, a lot more because I've realized that, you know, we all need to, to actually spend time on our own wellness and recharge to enable us to have the energy to do these activities. And for each person, that's a different way. Uh, there's a different way of recharging your wellness and there's so many different paths, but I think, you know, that's another thing I would say is if you're doing these things and you do them for the right reasons, you also have to make sure that you carve out time for yourself and your family to enable you to kind of keep going or else, you know, the last thing that anyone wants is for someone to feel like they're being pulled in too many different directions. And then, you know, they get resentful of all the different things that are pulling them. And then it, it actually doesn't go very well. So I feel very fortunate to have different levels of support from different people. And if I may just say one other thing, it was an epiphany that I had a couple of years ago. We do a lot of traveling as a family. We sort of lug the kids all over the place. And um, one of the reasons why I really like vacations and going traveling is just to get away from it because you're less likely to get pulled back into it. And we actually, um, a few years ago, we stayed in some GERS in Mongolia. So we're out in the middle of the steppes. And it was great because it's five days and there's no internet connection. And for the first two days, you're really subconsciously anxious. Oh my God, there's something important. They can't get a hold of me. And then you suddenly have this awakening that life goes on. I have colleagues who can deal with a lot of this at home. It really, I'm not that indispensable. And when you come to that realization, it really is, it's freeing that you can take time. You can spend it with your family. The world doesn't fall apart in your absence, no matter what job or role you have. And I think that's something that I've you know, really tried to focus that we always as a family go traveling at least once a year. We're fortunate to be able to do it but just give that time where I'm away and we can just focus on my life outside of medicine. And then I think that's been great in the last couple of years, especially. I think that's a, a great note to end on. And I, I'm going to take this opportunity for us to wrap up. I really want to thank our guests meeting each other for the first time. I've been trying to get these two to meet each other for so long. Dr. Gerald DeRosa, Dr. John Bradley. So thank you so much for taking this time out. It's just like one more teleconference for you guys this week. So well, this was much more interesting than the others. So thank you very much for having me. Very grateful. Uh, I'll also thank our producer, Nikki Thorpe of Bronick Consulting. And I'm thanking our listeners right now as well for your patience with any troubles with our sound quality. As you know, we are social distancing and we were doing this remotely together. This podcast is made possible from our local facility engagement via the Doctors of BC. If you guys want to get in touch with us or connect with us, you can reach us by email with behindthestethoscope at yahoo.com or on Instagram, and you'll be able to download our podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. If you enjoyed our show and want to see it continue, I would encourage you to consider a donation. It's as easy as going to the rchfoundation.com and donating with a note that says you want your $50 or so to go to the podcast fund. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Dr. Joelle Bradley.